0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to Literacy Podcast. Melissa and Lori love literacy. It is just Melissa and Lori today. Hi, Melissa. Hi. <laughs> uh, we are, well, actually, just us for the first few minutes, and then yeah. we're going to listen
1: to We'll bring some friends back. Yeah, we'll bring some friends back. <laughs> um, but yeah, we're on vacation this week.
0: We are. Woo! Well, we're preparing for vacation. But yes, when you listen to this, we are on vacation. So we are very excited to take a week away.
1: <laughs> yeah. We need it. As but does we are everybody. going to
0: leave everybody with some incredible content inspired by a few things. And I know Melissa, you want to share a story about what inspired us to choose this episode specifically. Other than that, it was massively popular.
1: Yes. Well, I'm always, always um, inspired by Sue Pimentel and Meredith Lieben. As you know, I quote them constantly. You're like, mm-hmm. okay, we get, we get the quote that's on your wall, so we get it. Yes. <laughs> But um, they they come up all the time. I think I'm just always sharing um, their knowledge and what they shared with us and what their article was about. And uh, a recent um, actual story is I'm, I'm in a graduate class for my admin degree, and you know it's a, it's all about evidence based decision making and using data. And you know someone just threw out there to me like Melissa, like it's so easy for literacy. I'm not sure like why you're struggling with it. Just like <laughs> simply give the you know whatever kind of benchmark test, you see what standards that they missed, and then you reteach those standards. And I was like, oh man, oh
0: no. <laughs> and we I got I some. We got some misinterpretation.
1: Yeah, I literally was like, okay, like you have to like you know there's you know have to listen to this this podcast. You have to listen, to read this article. I was like. You know we these are people who wrote or contributed to the writing of these common Core standards and can tell you how they should really be used and not that way. <laughs> um, so I just think you know this is this is one that I share all the time for for people who still need to hear it,
0: yeah, and I've heard from district leaders and school leaders that this episode in particular has been really helpful for them because when Common Core came out, what you just described was how the standards were interpreted and mm-hmm. it was very much isolated standards and we need to have standards-based grading and standards-based instruction and everything was quote standards-based and I yeah. even remember that doing that in, in city schools yeah. um you know quote back in the day and then as we transitioned and we we learned more and as um Meredith's Husband David Lieben says, No better, do better. But she also says it too, because she wrote the book as well. He wrote
1: the book too, yeah. She wrote the book too. She wrote the
0: book. That we transitioned away from isolated standards instruction and really grabbed onto the science of reading research in building knowledge. And that was really the intent to begin with. And this misinterpretation of standards has unintentionally left this mark of standards based instruction and now we almost have to unlearn and then learn again how to teach reading after right. this you know it's kind of like the aftermath of this right. standards based approach so i've heard a lot from district leaders and school leaders and literacy coaches that this episode in particular was really helpful for unlearning and then relearning what that what the intention of the standards was and it originally, and then how we can move forward in a more effective way.
1: Absolutely. Yep. Yeah. And Meredith and Sue, they just say it so well. <laughs> yeah.
0: who, better, who better to talk about it than, than our, our girls who
1: wrote the standards? <laughs> Absolutely. All right.
0: All right. So without further ado, we are throwing back to episode 37 with Sue Pimentel and Meredith Lieben. Enjoy. Bye.
1: Hi, everyone. Welcome to Melissa and Lori Love Literacy. We are super
0: pumped for today's guests. They are true literacy icons, and we are so excited to talk to them. Melissa, how pumped up are you? Yeah, so
1: excited. So... We we podcasted with David Lieben a while ago. I don't remember when, but a while ago. Before COVID. In, <laughs> way before COVID. <laughs> somewhere in the middle of that podcast, I had asked him a question about assessment and we were talking about standards. And he was like, you guys need to read this text at the center report. And, you know, eventually I finally did. And then I became really obsessed with it and shared it with everybody (laughs) that I possibly can. So I'm really excited to talk to Meredith Lieben and Sue Pimentel today, who wrote that, um, about what's in there and a bunch of other stuff. So I'm really excited. So welcome to the podcast, gals. How you doing? Good.
2: Every day, you know, every day is like, whoa, because um, <laughs> uh, I'm you know, working with my grandkids um, on their work. So I, my, my heart goes out to all the teachers and the students and the parents because it's just a ton. Uh, and I don't see it stopping anytime soon. But other than that, it is a beautiful day here in New Hampshire. The sun is up and out and it's cool and crisp. So I, I can't complain. Awesome. Sue, can you tell a little bit about yourself? Sure. What should I say? Um, well, I think probably for this conversation, one of the most important things to say is that I led the development of the Common Core State Standards in, you know, in English, Language, Arts, and Literacy. Um, since that time, I've been um, with Student Achievement Partners, um, uh, I'm called a founding partner, so worked very closely with Meredith and David and the whole team on uh, figuring out ways to implement the standards um, in ways that 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 both that teachers can do and that teachers can learn what they need to learn. I, my, my prior life um, before that uh, was working um, all over the country in districts that were trying to do better by their kids. So I understand the struggles that. Um, and the challenges that districts face, um, and, that, and that students face. So that's kind of me.
0: That's amazing. Thank you for that. Meredith, welcome to the podcast. We want you to introduce yourself as well. But first, tell us a little bit about how you're hanging in in COVID <laughs> quarantine. <laughs> <laughs>
3: oh, man. I, it, I can't believe it's only September, or <laughs> mid-September. And it feels like a universe of time has gone by, and I, similarly, I I was in the classroom until ten years ago, which seems like an eternity. It's too long, but I I just my hats are off to everybody who's trying to to practice with on any level because everybody's everybody's a teacher now. Parents, you know, people who are who are helping support parents so they can go work. Uh, teachers school leaders the whole system is so it's so challenging now it's always challenging it's one of the hardest jobs but now my goodness so agree with sue hats off to everybody who has the energy to listen to this after they have wrestled with their educational (laughs) challenges (laughs) for the day or week or, or eternity as it may be
0: Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Well, you all know, uh, we all are, are working with kids right now in some way, shape or form, like, you know, grandkids or kids of our own. And it definitely is, you know, I think it's almost like confusing, like challenging and confusing, (laughs) you know, what, what app do we use here? What website do we use there? So, um, at the, the base of it all though, if you have, you know, a great curriculum and that, that has high quality texts, um, that is going to really be helpful in this, this virtual space. And Melissa, I'm going to let you, um, ask them, the gals about the, uh, the report that they wrote, which yeah. Before is we incredible.
1: So in I want Meredith to tell a little bit about herself too.
0: <laughs> oh, sorry, Meredith. <laughs> I cut you off. I wanted to get to the report so badly. I'm so sorry. <laughs>
3: As do I. Um, so I, I am most, I have taught in all kinds of different settings. I taught uh, 19 years in East Harlem and Harlem and had the privilege of starting a school with David where we learned a lot of what we know about reading. Um, returned back to Vermont. And my mom was getting extremely old. Um, luckily, she proved to be very, more than extremely old. So I got to hang out with her a while at the end of her life. But I then taught in um, career and tech ed centers in Vermont. So I think of myself as a middle school teacher, and I did for 12 years, but I actually 13 other years were either high school or elementary, so um, I've run the spectrum. I, I, I feel like I inhabit teachers' point of view, um, and then had the privilege of helping support um, most of the reading standards uh, for the Common Core, and, and ever since then have been obsessed with what do they really mean, what are they at their core, how can they be used to promote equity and come alive for all for all students. So they can realize the promise of them. And I guess I'm a spirit of the law kind of person always. And I worry about sometimes uh, the letter of the law misinterpretations of the standards that, where they're used more as a hammer than, a, than an inspiration or as a year target. So I'm very excited to be here and, and have the chance to talk with two of my social media heroes, heroines, you too. Um, so thanks for the opportunity. Yeah.
0: Sue, so when, you, when you were a teacher, what did you teach? I taught the little, the little guys. Oh, guys. Okay.
2: Yeah. So the, the, the little ones, So, uh, preschool all the way up to about grade two, grade three, but it decades ago, although yep. I have to say, I want to say this though, because I still know the names, uh, you know, the last class I taught, I know what they did. I knew how they, you know, like how they grew and things they said. I mean, it, that is amazing thing about being, um, a teacher is mm-hmm. how Kids get into you, um, and when you go home at the end of the day, they're like all like in good ways, all in your head and in your heart. Yeah, uh, it's amazing because that was like I mean I'm talking like decades. They
0: decades stick with you, right? <laughs>
2: in, in really good ways, and sometimes when I was teaching, tiring ways because I was worried about one or I didn't know or what was I going to do here or there. But mostly watching them. Um, be so hungry about learning like uh, learning about the world and how it worked and so excited it's like you couldn't um disappoint them with any of that they just were you know like like sponges wanting to know and unafraid to want to know
0: yeah I think you two make a great pair because, Sue, you have the, the early childhood experience and Meredith, you kind of run the gamut. So you can see where they go once they leave that early ch- childhood space and and how they grow into mature readers and, and just bigger people who can think and critically think differently. <laughs> great.
1: <clears throat> so, yeah. Meredith, I think you actually already started where I wanted to start the conversation, um, which is around standards. So, you know, the common core standards, they've been, they've been around a while now, but, um, you know, they, I think what we're going to talk about with you all, like who have been in it from the, the development of them, you know, what is, what, what are they really about, especially the ELA standards? Um, and how are they, how do you see them kind of playing out? which is sometimes maybe different than what was intended behind them. Um, So that's where I wanted to start the conversation.
2: Super, well, you want me to start a little bit and and then say, so one of the big challenges when you're writing standards and here we were writing standards for English language arts literacy, is that you? You you start to pull things apart, right? You pull reading apart into some component parts. You pull writing apart. You pull um, speaking and listening apart, and language apart. So, and I know all teachers know you never just teach reading as a silo, right? You don't. You you can't teach reading. I mean, either students have to talk to you about them, or talk to each other about them, or they have to write about them. Um, and so, there is this place where what happens with standards is that they get so pulled apart and teachers think, or, or administrators, if I dare say, think you gotta like check things off. The whole point of the, of the standards is to knit them back together and, um, and, and to make um, proficient readers. And, and, and if I could say um, for teachers out there or for administrators who may be listening um, to really pay attention to the shifts because it's the shifts. It's not that don't pay attention to the standards. There's some things to pay attention because there's a progression that happens. But it really is about the text students are reading. And then are they talking about? And are they are they able to pull evidence out? Um, and are they able to learn and, and understand what it is they're reading? Because that's that's how their brains grow. And that's what's exciting to them. So I think there's this place where We got into sort of a checklist mentality. Maybe that came from, you know, how interims report out. I don't know. But that isn't what makes good instruction. And it isn't what is interesting to students. Um, And when we get later on, I want Meredith to be able to speak to this one. But we get later on, if I could do the standards over
0: again, what I might do. Yes, with the graphic. I want the graphic example, Meredith.
3: (laughs) Okay. And for me, I, I think I'm obsessed with the um the interweave that I, I always think of, this, of of English language arts and then the names, you know, the names that the standards assign to those annual year-end targets, which is what standards name. Um they don't name they're not an action plan, they're they're end of year targets at every grade. Um so the action plan for me is is a constant interweaving of speaking, listening, reading, and writing in service of deepening understanding, creating passion, understanding who you are as a human, understanding your place in the world, understanding the world, understanding how to change the world, which we badly need right now, brains who are confident they can, they can grow up and do better than what we're giving them. Um, so it's that interweave, a, a dynamic classroom and a supportive classroom has has students talking to each other sharing revelations pushing each other's thinking and i think what what i would love for people to understand is how how human the standards are when they're taken as a whole that way they we pro, we all process orally we rehearse when we have something a hard conversation to have we tend to go to a trusted source and say can you hear me before i before I do this? Or will you read this before I send it to make sure it's not um, misunderstood and that I'm clear? That's what, that's what our classroom should be recreating is the actually deeply human um, elements of of using language. And those things will help students who come in from another language base who are mastering English too, they can understand and process with their peers and, and, and get better, and then those things carry into reading and and obviously written expression. So, so for me, it's it's about creating the holistic promise of using language and creating people who can use it nimbly in all its different facets. So, Susan's Susan right about the, the teasing apart because they have to be codified, and then I I, I get the pressure on assessment creators to itemize them but that isn't the way they're taught that isn't the way they're learned and that's not the way they're exercised.
2: Could I also just add I think sometimes uh, for, for not necessarily teachers but for administrators and others think that uh the ela standards should be like the math standards which is like this you build on this and then you build on you know you learn this and you learn how to add and then you learn how to subtract and then you learn how to multiply and then you learn that is not this if you look at the um at the standards they're every year, you know, you're reading, you're reading more complex text. You are drawing evidence. You're getting more sophisticated in your ability to draw evidence from text. You're learning more so you can read, read more and do more. And if you look at the the standards, I think one thing that we, uh, one thing we did right in the standards, is if you look at the standards, text appears in the reading standards, also appears in the writing standards. You're writing about what you read. It also appears in the speaking and listening standards, which is so you're talking about just what Marith was saying. You're talking about what you're reading. Vocabulary, the importance of learning vocabulary, understanding vocabulary, which you get most from reading the volume of reading, certainly. But that appears in, 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 in all... Of the domains and pulling evidence from text, being able to, as Meredith said so beautifully, being able to share what you're learning uh, with what with one another. Again, yes, it's in the reading standards, appears in the writing standards, appears in the speaking and listening standards. So it's really important then to think about these coming together, sort of an interweave um, in the classroom.
0: Yeah, that's a great point about the the ELA versus the math standards. I think kind of two things that are important with with misconceptions one is that ela and math are different and folks try to lump them together like oh well we'll just reteach the skill of finding the central message because then they'll be able to do that just like you do in math when you reteach the skill of whatever repeated edition um but then ela is just different in and of itself because it's so interwoven, um, and and I think that we forget that we can't isolate like we can from math. So like they're different, and we can't isolate. So like it's yeah. kind of like a dual understanding. Am I am I hearing y'all correctly?
2: Absolutely. And Meredith, you should speak to foundational skills because the one exception is of course foundational yeah. skills, Meredith. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, so foundational skills
3: are somewhat akin in the common core or any, probably any set of standards because they are, the skills are named the way the math standards name the skills and and therefore the progression is actually, um, you know, it does staircase itself. So foundational skills also name what the ingredients are of, of learning how to decode and then how to get to automatic word recognition and then how to do all that fluently. And those need to be mastered At some point, you know, ideally early on so that the years and years and years of school students can access text for themselves. But I think what's also important is yes, they work that way, but they work in concert with the, with the reading comprehension side, the ELA side of the standards. So even in kindergarten, it's mostly through oral comprehension, A-U-R-A-L comprehension, read aloud. Students get to grapple with complex ideas. And read aloud is an under, another underutilized weapon if, if or tool, better. Um, <laughs> if students haven't, aren't reading at grade level for whatever reason, um, there's been a mismatch of, of uh, instruction to their needs. So the ELA standards continue. They are always rich and complex. They are always at interplay, but foundational skills need to be solidified at some point and they are much more linear and it's never too late to do that work. It gets harder as students get older, but you don't withhold the good rich stuff from older students or five-year-olds. They get it through their ears if no other means or through that rich discussion and discourse because learning to read is a completely different part of the the brain that's been co-opted far back in our human history um, to decode and and recognize an alphabetic uh, system that doesn't mean your brain can't think about really interesting ideas and contribute to rich discussions and, and uh, solve problems and do everything else that a thinking brain can do, even if you're a slower at decoding.
0: Yeah, that oral comprehension. When does it When does it level out? I think I'll, I'll take a guess. I, I have um, this image that just like is in my brain that I'm not sure that I can find ever again, but I saw it one time and it, it was this beautiful progression. I think it's like 12, 12 years old, thir- like sixth grade-ish? Yeah, I think I,
3: I, this is where I would run get David to lock <laughs> in the research, but I, I've read fifth grade, but I've also read during middle school is when the sort where of the uh, trajectories schools. cross. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I, it probably, the reason it's probably a little slippery is because it's not, there's not one human locked in, lock in, you know, every brain is different. So I bet you it, it happens at different times for different students. Yeah. Um, yeah, but access to text is paramount at all points. Everybody has, that is a right um, to have access to rich, complex text. Yeah. And and I, I think it's not baked into standards. It wouldn't have even been appropriate, but I think it's not a do-over, but it certainly, um, you know, text at the center is so, uh, um, you know, it's, it, it's unnamed, but I think it, we really need, we're at a, we're at a moment. Now, long overdue of reckoning, you know whose story is being told, whose history are we exploring? So that text also has to has to be broadened out and tell everybody's story and everybody's history and teach, um, you know, and and reach people um, and reflect people's reality that we have constantly underrepresented in in our schools too. So I think right now, Sue and I have been spending a ton of time. I, hopefully, everybody is thinking about how to expand our definition of. Of what rich and complex text
0: is. Yeah. And I want to call call out standard ten, which is that yes. access to complex text.
1: <laughs> really important <Yeah>. standard. <laughs> yes.
0: Yeah. Yes. But I think is kind of like one where if you've read the I mean you've been reading the standards for a really long time, you're like, Oh yeah, standard ten. But like that's like yeah. the really important one. <laughs> yeah and that's what i that's what I
2: wanted to say too in uh any sort of a rewrite I would pull standard ten right up and right with with standard number one, which is pulling evidence from text mm-hmm. and on what kind of text you're reading these this content rich complex text and 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 you know I think um you know it's interesting you bring this up because so much way too much of what we've done um in this country, uh, for decades, and still doing, even with that complex text sitting there, is put students in level text and put students in below uh, grade level text. Um, and there are some reasons for you know, it kind of feels like okay, it's your right, it's your right level. So of course, we wouldn't do more. But it also feels incredibly un-American to me. Can I say that? I mean, <laughs> yeah. because what we because what we decided early on. And then we keep, we, we, we don't let you, we don't let kids get out of it. Like some kids are strong readers, you know, really easy, comes easy, some kids. Mm-hmm. But many of us had to build our reading muscles, like for a while before we could catch up. Well, the way you build your reading muscles is to be faced with content-rich complex text, I mean, grade appropriate, which is defined, and, and then get some support with it. And the fact is that there is study after study after study after study that shows that even students who are still building their muscles on reading, and so you might give them a, might as, uh, assign them a below grade level reading level if they were just reading on their own. I want to say a little more about that in a second too, because it uh, drives me wild. But but <laughs> it, show, it, it says in those studies that when students are given content, rich, complex text, they, they, they their, their vocabulary grows, their knowledge grows, their fluency grows, Their uh, their, their the, if, if you care about assessments, they do better on assessments. That's with students who actually came in, quote unquote, below level. And so what are we doing? Uh, what are we doing to them? Because the fact of the matter is, if you look at the What students get when they read these below-level texts, and they're getting that not just in one week, but week after week after week after week after week. week. Yeah. What happens to them? You can't expect them to learn more than we're teaching them and allowing them to do. So, I feel like this has just gotten stuck here um, in in this country, and I don't know how to unstick
0: people. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Uh, and I would say like here in Baltimore, I mean, we've, you know, we adopted Common Core right away. We were doing PDs. We, we created our own curriculum. Now we adopted Way and Wisdom. I feel like, you know, we've done, we've taken really good steps in the right direction. And even when I was in the classroom and, and even now I still see that, um, you know, it, it's still so driven by this standards and standards mastery and the text still gets lost even when we have good texts. Yeah. mastery and isolation. Lost. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like the teachers are planning around the standards and the objective is written for the day around the standards. And the check for assessment each day is around the standard and the assessments at the end are for the standard. And the whole text just gets lost in that. I pulled out a quote from you guys um, that said, the standards themselves are not the goal of daily instruction. Understanding the texts encountered and being able to express that understanding is. Um, and that just really spoke to me because I feel like that's that's what I feel like is still getting lost, even when we take all these steps in the right direction.
0: Yeah. Well, Melissa, and I think too, what I want to say, just for listeners to kind of keep in mind too, is that Baltimore is in a second year of a high-quality curriculum adoption, where they are using, you know, complex text at the center of their teaching, and that like mindset shift is still. We're still working on it, right? Mm-hmm. And and so it, it takes a lot of time, and effort, and energy to undo what decades have done, um, right. and and also like
1: still see Lori, where they'll say, okay, well they can't read this text easily, so I'll find an easier one, and as long as they can master this standard with this easier text, then we can move on and we're good to go. <laughs> yeah, um, and that's what worries me. And I'm not saying every every teacher does that. I'm not blaming teachers, yeah. but I think it is something we still see.
2: Right. And, and and the fact is that, you know, both of you are raising and Meredith said this as well around the text is is that the re- we don't read a text to check on our skills and our comprehension strategies like right. boring <laughs> and not useful. Right. We read. And this is one thing that I think got lost in in sort of decades of schooling too, is that we thought that it was all about the skill or it was all about the comprehension strategy, which I know has research behind it, but not like ad nauseum. The point of reading is to learn from it. And then when you learn from one text on a particular topic, then you can read another one and you, you add to your knowledge on that. That's why we read. And by the way, that is what is interesting to students is to hear what an author's saying. You might agree, you might disagree, you might be learning more. It might conflict with what you heard before or knew before, but that's what's interesting. It's not, uh, at the and, and I just want to say for everybody out there, that reading standards two through nine are not meant to be taken in isolation. We never meant that. Remember I said I would start with standard one and standard 10, uh, that two through nine are ways to unpack a text. You don't use all of them all the time. It depends on if structure is really apparent in the, in the text, or if there's an argument that's going on that the author's making a claim, that's when you pull them in. So it's really thinking about how to use those strategically, not to learn how to do the skill, but to learn how to unpack the knowledge that's in the text.
0: Yeah, Meredith, will you share your will you will you discuss your graphics Since I know nobody can see you right now.
3: <laughs> <laughs> so one of my favorite slides because it's the first one I successfully animated years ago, <laughs> not, being a, not being a PowerPoint uh, aficionado. Or, um, but anyway, but my vision of the standards is is a ladder. So the poles, the, the strength of it comes from one on one pole. Standard one, the evidence standard, and then the other poll is standard ten, the text complexity standard. Those two rise up in complexity from K to 12. They are they are clearly get more sophisticated. You know what you what you read is gets more challenging and rich and complex, and then what you're expected to do with it, the evidence you're you're uh, supposed to extract and then deploy in speaking or writing, gets more demanding. Two through nine are the rungs. They walk, they, you stand on them while you're accessing evidence and text. They, are, they, they serve those master polls, and they do they do increase in complexity, in and when you read them, they're a little bit more demanding. But essentially, standard four is always dealing with vocabulary. That vocabulary is getting more challenging and interesting because of the text complexity, not because... Standard four in fourth grade is radically different than standard four and eighth. There is nuance, yes, uh, but it's the complexity of the text that leads the demand. So if you don't concentrate on the text itself and the complexity it's offering you to to read and understand and learn from, you are the whole ladder collapses because you're trying to make the rungs into the whole, into the whole point, and they're just where you stand for the moment so you can climb higher on um, text complexity. So I do like that ladder metaphor. Um, yeah, it, 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 uh, it, sometimes this whole conversation reminds me of my favorite Billy Collins poem. Um, is I, can't, I, always, I think it may be called How to Read a Poem, but he talks about tying what we do to poems. We tie them to chairs and beat them to make them tell us, reveal their meaning instead of reading them and living within them. And it's a gorgeous little poem Um, But it it feels like we do that to text. We beat them to make them reveal their structure, whether their structure is a big deal or not. And we we get kids stuck on structure because it's structure week. So everything we or author's purpose week. And instead of saying we're reading an editorial, it really matters what the author's purpose is. So let's look at that. And, you know, the text demands what attention we pay to it, not the inverse. We can't beat the text to make it squish into whatever standard we want to we want we want to be uh, talking about. And that's just it's it is horribly deadening. It's really it's no wonder to me that, that most children, you know, most students in America don't like to read. Either they haven't been taught because they've been stuck in level text, or they've been taught with really complex text but they've been they've been like just asked to think about main purpose or making a prediction instead of understanding the actual what that writer, you know left his heart on the page to reveal to us we don't get to we don't show that to kids enough so let them play with it and and revel in it
0: yeah i remember um when i taught second grade pre-common core i remember distinctly like you said that week was cause and effect week and i had it up on my bulletin board and you know every we we were we were looking for cause and effect and all the texts that we were reading and i remember planning for the next day and and thinking I've run out of texts that show cause and effect. What, what the hell am I going to do now? (laughs) And I couldn't like, I was like, Oh my God. Like, so I'm like frantically searching for, and then I was like, this is so stupid. I'm just going to teach them like a good, good, good text. And I mean, but I didn't have a a high quality curriculum, you know? Um, And I I was doing it on my own, but I remember that moment standing there being like, I've run out of texts and it was like my second year teaching, right? Like, what and and I'm supposed to be teaching cause and effect, and now I don't have any more cause and effect texts because we've read them all. What what do I do? <laughs> like that's not that's not
1: the practice we want.
0: <laughs> no, it's not.
1: No. I'm wondering. You guys talked in the in the report about um, teachers spending a majority of their time planning with the text. Mm. Um, I thought that was interesting, and I think you know, if, if there is no curriculum, I think like Lori, right, you'd have to spend time <laughs> with your text to see, is it cost no or is it not? Um, <laughs> and I'm wondering if that also applies if we have, like we do, um, have and Wisdom, a high quality curriculum, if you still would recommend the majority of the teachers planning time being spent with the text and how that would look.
2: Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> and one of the beauties of, uh, of a Witten Wisdom or or other um, knowledge-based curriculum, I would say, is that um, you really, um, there. there is an attention um, to the text. Um, if you don't have that, as you were saying, Lori, or if you're in one that sort of moves through the standards and says, today you're doing structure and cause and effects, or this week and next week you're doing author's purpose, is that um, you don't you, you what What happens is that you stop focusing on the text itself and what it means and what it will mean to the students who will be reading it, what they will be learning, what they uh-huh. will learn from the text. So there is no doubt that also, you know, um, uh, and I'm not sure about this, about wit and wisdom. And you might be able to tell me this, Meredith, but. You know, you have these rich texts and they, they talk about, they show you what to focus on. But then as the as the teacher in the classroom, it's right there with your students, right? So it depends on like, what are your students' reactions to this? What are your students' questions about this? What do I want to um, ask more about? Because either it's really interesting to my students or it's a place where they're grappling. They're not quite sure they get it or... Or, or that. So really, um, and being able, I think one thing that we can do for students is when we revel in the text, when we model, and I think there's actually research about this marathon that when we model that, when we're excited about reading this text, um, when we really know the text, then it, it it models that for students about there's something here that you're gonna really, in one way or another, enjoy. You're going to enjoy the challenge of it or you're going to enjoy the ideas in it. There's something here for you because there was something here for me in it. So, um, you know, the one good thing about the, like a wit and wisdom is that it, it helps to unpack what's in the text for the teacher. You does not have to do it all by himself or herself, which is, uh, which is a tall task, but still to really read it and understand it so that you can, when you're then faced with your students, you can get what they're getting.
3: Yeah, I, I more prag, yeah, pragmatically, Witten wisdom does a lot of the the thinking about those key ideas and and offers up superb questions and and um, discussion points for a teacher. But um, some I don't know if if uh, Witten wisdom's great minds calls it intellectual preparation. I know Match Education has a in their pre-planning, it's called intellectual preparation, and and some of the higher quality you know evidence-based curricula that that promote knowledge building. Do it's they, just like you have to think about this yourself because the access so there's a flip here too. If we're not leveling text, we still need to give all our students access, and, and our students are uneven in how confident they are as readers and how firm their foundational skills is, et cetera. So the task, the other aspect of intellectual preparation and reading and studying a text is to figure out how. How, as the instructor, knowing your students, you're going to provide access to that text. You're not going to go abandon it and run, get a, a simpler, you know, go go somewhere and get a simpler version of that same thing, and um, so your your students can like lose all the syntax and all the vitality of that text. You're going to bring them to that text, but it's your job to make sure they do have access. Mm-hmm. And to me, that that often, again, the hint to do that is is through discussion, through reading, and through elevating. Um, students doing the work of talking and listening to one another and, you know, and learning from one another. I think that's another one of our mantras that Student human Partners is that question of who's doing the work. Is the teacher working harder than for students? That's a problem. The are supposed to be going home really tired, brain tired at the end of, at the end of the Zoom, um, yes. at the end of the day. <laughs> and not the teachers, you know, shouldn't be leaving it all on the floor and the students are, are sitting there half dead because of boredom and, and lack of,
2: yeah. Can I also just say one thing, because the flip side of like a wit and Wisdom or L Education or some of these others is a level text uh, system where you've got your students reading all you've got a, a class of 30 kids and they could be reading 30 different books. I mean, maybe not that much. Maybe it's 15, maybe it's 10. But imagine if you do not, you've not read those texts um, because it's a lot. That's like a lot of text to read. Um, then, and then you want to have a conversation with, with students about that text, even if it's in a small group or a small reading group. Well, my goodness, like what, what you don't, you don't know anything about the text. So then you ask these sort of generic, what did you think? What's the, yeah. man, you have no idea what the man, but what's the, <laughs> man. so I mean, I mean, so the preparation when you're not dealing with one or the other one that sort of center around an anchor text and then have other texts around is is like the 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 load that teachers have to carry there is is immense and i fear most don't have time to do it.
0: Yeah. So uh, that's exactly i had jotted down um while while meredith was talking that very similar along those lines of what you just shared but i was thinking like this is really the first time it, at least you know i've i've been in education for 17 years this is the the first time that I've been here and teachers are being asked to do so much preparation work beforehand that's really just intellectual, challenging, different work than what we've known before. And then coming into the classroom and saying, okay, now I'm going to let the students do the work in this space, right? Because I've prepared. I know the stuff so deeply, but it's so different than that level text model because when you did the level text, you really were becoming an expert on the strategy, which I still don't know what that means. And I'll be honest about that. Like, I don't know what it means to be an expert on cause and effect. Um, with (laughs) with my kids who are reading 20 (laughs) different books, right? Like, and, and, you know, I will say I've, I've, I've done guided reading. I didn't ask the best questions. I could only prepare so much because I had 10 different things going on. Um, So this is the first time I think in education where we're asking teachers to do really different more intellectual, harder work that they most likely were not prepared for at the collegiate level and most likely are, continue to not be prepared for. I mean, I have, I've got my master's, um, like probably some of you listening, because I know we're all required to do so within a certain number of years. And then, you know, I, I got my admin uh, one when Presley was three. So that was five years ago. And there was no, uh, you know, mention of high-quality instructional materials in my leadership course. So we are asking people to do something just completely like, "Hey, this is this is new. <laughs> this is the right thing to do." <laughs> but this, you probably never heard of it before. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, uh, that may not. It, it is well. hard work, but.
3: Yeah, it is hard work, but it's also really, I mean, it is what a lot of teachers went into teaching. You know, they love literature. They love reading. They love thinking about books. Yeah. So it does invite that again. I think the other crazy irony here is that this approach, the intellectual preparation and then turning it over to your students, so it's truly a student-centered and student-driven uh, learning with teachers facilitating is actually the goal and dream of a, a reader's workshop approach, right? Putting students at the center and teachers being the coach, the guide. This actually holds the promise of that. And at level, I never, I know they must exist. They, they just must with teachers killing themselves to do so because I'm also readers and writers workshop trained and I have as much energy as anybody I've almost ever met. (laughs) And I could not, in East Harlem with 70 students a day, I could not pull it off. You know, having 70 different um, personal biographies of, you know, of whatever, you know, whoever they were writing about, I could not do enough money lessons. I was running as hard as I could. So I never, it wasn't ever a unified, rich, student-driven classroom. It was always me staggering home at the end of the night trying and tearing my hair out. And so, but but this actually holds the promise of a text te- centering text and then helping the students access that text is kind of the promise of of, of truly workshopping a text together, which it was the the sort of goal, you know, the the love of literature, love of learning, love of reading goal behind um the workshop approach but it's just it, it hasn't been successfully actualized and it also defaulted the standards and and teaching skills in, in a really pernicious way I, I feel like so yeah we all have to unlearn it and hardly anybody is helping show us the way it's all a lot of people doing a lot of self-study and that that's why I really appreciate chances like this where you all are talking about this week after week after week so
2: I also it's say- hard it's hard work Meredith, sorry, I didn't need to interrupt you. So, and Meredith, you talk a lot about this about how learning is social. I mean, it's one of the hard things now um, mm-hmm. with this online virtual learning thing where kids are so siloed. Um, but there's this this place where you I've heard teachers talk about. Okay, I'm just going to try this. I'm just like gonna like I'm not gonna I'm gonna leave the level text thing behind, and I'm just going to teach an anchor text. And realizing that all students in the class, whether they were the strongest readers or you know they're still building their muscles, and you know that 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 assignment of a of a level uh, reader thing sort of hangs, up, they all had something to um uh to share they all helped one another with their perspectives which was interesting for teachers to see that it wasn't just based on what we would call, you know, a student's um, reading ability. Um, and I think that's so important, too, um, as we think about when we get kids into twos and threes, they don't get the they don't get the sense of of the of the class and the richness of what those discussions can be because um, they aren't hearing from 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 their peers that might come at text completely differently than 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 another student. So I think that's another thing that gets lost when we start to section kids off the way we do.
1: That's a really good point. (laughs) So I want to jump into a little deeper into something we brought up a couple of times, but around assessment. Um, So another, you know, habit or not habit, but things we learned in grad school (laughs) and things that are good, good strategies is data-driven instruction, Um, And I remember my first year teaching uh, where, you know, I was, I had to track who, who mastered which standard. And um, I, from the first year was like, this doesn't feel right. Like, I don't know that they've mastered, like, how do you master some of these things didn't seem right. (laughs) Like, I don't know. Um, But that's what we were doing. And I think we're still doing. Um, So just wanted to get, you know, you guys talked about, you know, not isolating the standards and. All of this ri- really rich, like discussion based and hearing from students, but how do we marry that with the push for data driven instruction um, that often falls into isolating standards and assessing them and maybe reteaching well, them? <laughs> well, in isolation. We have to, we have to, we have to stop that. <laughs>
2: stop it. Like, like I understand the the desire to and the need for teachers to check and have and have a good understanding about where their students are or are not. It's complicated in uh, reading because it's you when a student takes a test and and they answer a question. there's a, there's a hundred reasons why they might be getting it wrong. Um, or maybe not that many, but at least about 20 (laughs) of them, right? Like they're not, they can't, they can't, their, their fluency, um, with this particular topic is not good. So that's happening. The vocabulary, then they're having a problem with, they've never read about this stuff. There's so many different things. It, 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 probably the last thing it is, is because they didn't know how to identify the structure or they didn't know how to identify the author's purpose. That's likely not happening because when you're reading the text, all of this stuff is coming together. Now I can understand te- you know, if there are such things and maybe they're getting to be built here. I know Louisiana's done a little bit of this and some of that where you're actually have an interim that matches the curriculum. So, um, So what what you've actually been studying and what you've been learning and what you've been reading about actually then gets reflected on whatever test there is. But we are way behind, (laughs) way behind in our assessments. We are still at that. You know, did they get this is an item that tests, you know, central idea. Did you get it right? Did you get it wrong? How'd you do it? I do think there is new new conversations coming up about um, one checking a student's fluency to begin with on this grade level text. Um, and seeing if fluency is an issue or if there's some other foundational skill issue going on for the student if you find fluency is not good. Um, and then thinking about ways to bundle the standards, you know, we think about the qualitative characteristics of text, you know, as you're thinking about the complexity of the text and thinking about ways to bundle them and how are students doing in those bundling. Also thinking about, you know, we hear that, you know, um, usually literature is easier for students than informational text. So kind of checking that a little bit too, if you if you have enough um, uh, text, the problem is, that in a lot of what is out there now in interims, a, a child's getting like two different texts. That's it. And by the way, if they don't know anything about that yeah. subject area, um, uh, then then they, they may do badly, but not because they can't read. It's because because they don't know anything that this topic is totally new to them. So they're of course they're going to struggle through it more, and we want them to be able to struggle through it more. So we have a long way to go to make any interim worthwhile and worth the money, by the way, worth the money and time and time. And then ask teachers to then look at what, how the results come in, where they then feel, I don't know, under pressure forced to, Oh, this is this is the skill, you know, a lot of your kids in the class never got. Now I could see, you know, if you're seeing something consistent and as you check with your kids on, if you're allowed to take a look at, you know, how they did and ask them questions about it. But I mean, there could be a place where you could go, oh gosh, you know, a lot of the texts we've, I've used over the year, haven't done as much on structure. And so that's, you know, so, so, okay. So we can, you know, now take, you know, take, take some texts and take a look at that, you know, that, that, that are cohesive in some, some fashion. So I'm not saying that one would never look at that, but, but the way we do it now, no.
1: Yeah, and I, when you were talking about that too, I think it's interesting. I don't know that w- I've never seen, but maybe it has happened where um, teachers are looking at the texts for assessments. You know, we look so. I think we skip right to the, the, answers. the data <laughs> reports and how did they get it? Yes or no? But we never look at that. Like, well, what what was in the text <laughs> that they
2: read? And that needs to be done. Oh, and assessment folks have to be anyway. Meredith, go! But assessment folks have to be able yeah. to get those out so you can actually see. <laughs> Meredith, yeah.
3: yeah. I, I remember reading years ago in France, you know, high-stakes tests. You know, we have nothing on European high-stakes tests at Sift and Winnow Kids. Um, but, but in France, the national test is published in the newspaper the next day, and families routinely sit down and, like, go over it with their kids and talk about, like, oh, how did you do What do you think? And then it's the, te- the texts are released every year. Mm-hmm. So we need models where, the, where not only the items, but the passages are released every year. And the banks are so robust that that doesn't matter. They, you know, and, um, there are, there are solutions to, to how to make those permissions affordable. Um, the assessment companies know what those solutions are and, and some of them have, have, have gotten them. I also think the other huge problem is who definitely, uh, pointed toward this too is you, the assessments are not yet reporting why your student got an item wrong. Yeah. There are so many reasons why. Really low down on the list is that they don't understand the concept of main idea. We're pretty much hardwired to understand the, the point, the main idea. That is very rarely why a student got a main idea question wrong or whatever. And, and, and we are hardwired to make inferences. If, so it is a, it is a, it, there is something else breaking down and in the interims and the summatives, none of them tell us what is breaking down for that student in that moment. Is it vocabulary? Is it a decoding problem? Are they exhausted because they're not fluent enough to sort of easily keep up when this is a sixth passage? Now, again, teachers with Herculean effort could do that for themselves and know their students to that degree. But what if the companies started to provide that kind of information or we used AI, we used personalized learning to actually interrogate the kid and say, What were you thinking when you did this? Like, where did your thinking pattern go wrong? And those were the really interesting conversations we were having. Non-defensive, non-judgmental, just like I'm really interested in your thinking. This you didn't you got you got the answer wrong, but I'm really curious what you were thinking or what happened when you chose this other alternative answer. Those are the assessments worth taking and worth spending time on. And you would actually learn actionable and helpful data to have data parties around, if you had that kind of conversation. So right now it feels like incredible misallocation of resources, of teacher time and energy, student and parent angst, and money. And money is so scarce and it's gonna be scarce for a while in schools with the holes we've dug ourselves into. So why, why are we doing these things to ourselves and to most importantly to our students?
0: Yeah, and I'm 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 assuming that there's um, not an assessment out there right now that that performs these magical powers of being able to give the diagnosis. <laughs> um, but I always thought when I was a teacher that listening to a student read and was like the most intimate experience you could have, because even your best readers, you know, um, who could attack any text when you gave them a more challenging text, you could hear where their miscues were going to be and and where they struggled or where they really excelled. Um, And so, you know, I I feel like that old practice is still really relevant (laughs) in that.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's why, and you know, there are you know, um, so I love the idea of of a teacher listening to each one of her students um, doing that, and and, and you know, instead sort of in a, in, a pri- in, in some private time, there's also a lot of AI now that where this can happen. And and by the way, the fluency piece. Sometimes we think, oh, it stops at third grade or it stops at fifth grade. Like it doesn't stop. Why? Because <laughs> uh, the texts get more complex, and so to be able to check on, as you've just suggested, Lori, the the miscues that might be happening. Um, the, the fact that after the child gets done, uh, plowing through the words, um, do they know they have any sense about what they just read about? I mean, just some simple like questions. And there's a lot that you, we can take off of teachers, but it doesn't take away from a teacher listening to a student. I don't want to say that, but there are things that assessments can do where a child can, can read into a, um, uh, you know, into a computer and, 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 and the teacher can get some really good information there. Um, and they're, I think it's getting better and better by the way, I think the technology is getting better and better on that. So yes, what if we folks... can automate everything, oh. but prosody, um, you know, the actual
3: expressiveness and there's good research that prosody <coughs> corresponds tightly to, to comprehension. You can't, you can't say it with the proper expression if you didn't understand what you were reading. So talk about a cheaper alternative and, and less taxing to reading comprehension tests, yeah. um, just listening to a student's prosody and, and querying them about what they think they read.
2: Lori, can I just also say, because this was my experience with my yeah. granddaughter on fluency, so every week she'd bring home a passage on fluency, and, and she was supposed to be timed. And, um, you know, which I, and I know there are, you know, there are measures about whether you're fluent or not, but her whole point was to beat her time. So she would be like, "It was." I remember there's one on elephants, and it was like, dun, 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 "How do I do?" You, you know, <laughs> I mean, and it, you, you know, so it's really important, as Meredith said, about this prosody thing. About are you reading it so that the
1: person who's listening to you, you're <laughs> not speed not reading, right? Done. I understand. I, I made that mistake as a teacher. <laughs> Everyone had their little timers, and they were just all speed reading, and I was like, "This is not what I'm <laughs> hoping for." <laughs>
0: No, you know what? You know what I think um, is also another to to add to the fluency conversation. When um, kids are asked comprehension questions about Nat and Pat, you know, sat on a mat, what happened to Nat? I'm like, are you kidding? Come on. (laughs) Nothing really of importance happened to Nat. So can we stop talking
2: about it? Very good. Sometimes I think we have to turn these Uh, assessments back on ourselves and try to see, well, what the heck would we do uh, or say? Um, And then we're saying, oh, yeah, kind of, kind of hard to say what we would do.
0: When when folks are still using like an an old method of of assessment, but you know, it's, let, let's pretend like it's folks at the top who are making decisions. They're the decision makers. How do we shift mindset? How do we support and help and understanding that, you know, this practice is not really relevant? Um, it was never relevant, but just like leveled reading, we might've gotten in, into some habits that were off course and we're trying to re reach our, our course. Do you, do you la- ladies have any suggestions for that?
2: I think it's so hard. Um, I'm I'll, I'll, Meredith, you have good ideas because I, I mean, part of it is to have frank discussions as a group. In other words, I, I think a teacher individually, it's really tough. I think um, I think I would probably move up the chain, which I'd get my teachers together, my teachers together, and my coaches together, and then go see the principal and pound on the desk and hope that the principal could understand and see and 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 so that you get. You, you can have advocates talk about it. I think it's really tough. Uh, you know, the other thing to do, um, which is not great, is just like, okay, give the ding dong thing and then ignore the results and move on with your good formative understanding about where your kids are and what they need. I think it's a real tough one, Lori. I, uh, I'm, I'm hoping... I'm hoping some administrators will be listening to this. I know they come at it from a different place, but if it's really not showing you what the kids can do and not do, it's really not showing you that your students are gaining in their reading, then um, then, 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 don't do it. I'll, I'll say this one other thing, that, one other idea that's come up, which I think is rather interesting, which is to think about not an interim as an isolated event. Um, so if you're determined to give them, but to look at how the students have done over time um, so that there's some sort of a reading inventory on their complexity, because maybe the complexity's up and down depending upon what they're actually reading or not reading or, you know, what the topic is or not. So that there are, I, I think there are other ways to do it. And I would just say, you know, um, that, that administrators here have a ton of power with the vendors that they are working with. They can say what we have. I'm hearing from our teachers this isn't helping. You need to give us something that's better that reports out in a way that we can actually use the results. And um, and again, this whole notion, Lori, about how they report out in reading the same way they report out in math doesn't work. Yeah, doesn't give. And so, but I don't know, Meredith. What you know? So, it's a tough one. <laughs> it is a tough one. I. I also think it's a
3: place where there's just myriad um, unintended consequences. Like the whole teacher accountability thing, I, you know, on an equity level, you know, black and brown children cannot wait for teachers to get all the education they need, you know, and all the, you know, they, we can't keep asking students to wait for us all to know better. So I get, you know, coupling assessment to teacher accountability. I get the reasoning behind that, but I think that led to a lot of unintended consequences. I also think those very principles are going back to our earlier conversation coming in with the checklist of the standards. They they don't know better. That's what, they don't have a deep under, they can't have a deep understanding of everything. Um, so they, they go to a checklist kind of place and then the teachers are pressure, and, you know down at trickle. So there's an enormous need for education. I mean, part of me just wants to say, could we call a moratorium until we have some better answers? Um, and I know, no, there could be screaming <laughs> for that. Yeah, but it's not a very, you know, acceptable and there's contracts and there's legislation and read by three. I feel like all it's a house of cards that I, if we suspended for a little while until we did know better and could do better, it might be a great service. But I, I, I know that's sounds so sane, but I know it's a, that's a very <laughs> radical proposition. I'm aware.
2: Right now, maybe right now, you know, with this whole COVID and at home and going to school a couple days or whatever else it is, where there's, where one, there's so much money needing to go to keep it safe. And, um, and so many different ways that, that students are getting instructed that maybe, maybe, maybe a moratorium, it's the wisest thing um, to do right now. It gives us an opportunity, um, and if administrators and others are looking for an excuse, uh, a good excuse to step back and say we need to rethink this whole enterprise here. COVID gives us an opportunity to do that, um, and actually necessitates what's. Fa- I mean, what's fair for students? How are you going to give like interims on a you know when a student's sitting at home? Um, And and expect so let's let's we've got lots of reasons not to do it so let's like not do it step back Um, and I think a moratorium is 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 a a great thing and I think that parents and teachers would love it and we could do better by our students. I'm a big fan of
3: a radical idea. So that's the comprehension side of the house that we're talking about. Again, the exception is foundational skills. We do need, not on a quarterly basis, on a weekly basis, to know what our students know about learning how to read so that we can intervene at the right grain size. So that's where grain size matters and timeliness matters. And teachers should, you know, again, doing it at home when first grader you're trying to learn in a Zoom box is crazy-making to me. Um, So I don't, I I have, you know, nothing but sympathy and and questions. I don't have solutions, but I do know that foundational skills are the exception to this, that we we can't stop assessing and teachers knowing and then reacting to what they know and and making sure they're providing students with missing pieces so that students do learn to read and have the access, you know, to all these riches we've been talking about. So that's, I do want to draw a very bright line between foundational skills assessing and reading comprehension assessing or which is what it should be. It shouldn't be standards present. It should be assessing reading comprehension. And the standards are named, therefore. It would all come together uh, once we figure it out. And while we're blowing through barriers and and, uh, sacred cows, I I do think that the whole COVID era is forcing a reckoning on what should our school days look like? And, And I'm really talking more about secondary school for students. You know, I'd like to think, and I'm not at all sure, you know, you don't know until you're walking there, but if I were... Teaching, still teaching high school and middle school, I'd be thinking to myself, you know, what can my students do now that we can't do inside the four walls? Like, what's different now? Are there any opportunities here or are there just obstacles? Um, I kind of feel like we need a, we need a radical reset of, of what school looks like for our older students because it's not working. Seven period day isn't working. De facto, tracking isn't working for, you know, nothing there is working. We need, more humane approaches, more flexing. Um, we're developing a model who David and I are uh, called the Humanities Accelerator course for ninth or sixth graders that we, we are really excited about. We actually think Baltimore should be really excited about it and other places we're in conversations. But that it would be a radical redesign of the school day for, for middle or high school students um heterogeneous model with no apologies so that students are together respecting each other's talents and what everybody brings to the table and and kids are getting through what they need through highly personalized, you know, part of the day would be highly personalized and, you know, sort of the anonymity of technology giving students what they need or um and, but everybody getting the good stuff and everybody getting their needs met in a much more humane, holistic way, where adults are sort of have their hands around the kids much more like elementary school where there's a few trusted adults with adolescents who need time to develop anyway i think there's lots of opportunity here for redesign and um and radical overhaul and resetting of a system that's badly broken you know in terms of how you know how racist these institutions are they're systemically not healthy for for any kids specifically black and brown but they are have not been good for white students either a few thrive and, and but even those students I think have things that they aren't learning well yeah. in schools as they are.
2: And if I could just add one oh, thing, that's the end of my end of my radical. No, of course, of course, <laughs> I love it. I'm right there with you. There, what, 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 when Meredith talked about the seven periods. Um, you know, it's so disjointed. And in, and in a, you know, a humanities accelerator course allows, um, that could take many different forms, by the way, but allows students to go deep um, go deep both in uh they're building their knowledge around certain topics that could be really fascinating and interesting, but also to go deep um, so they can extend their learning um, through research and additional reading that they want to do um, on, on the topic, so that they're they're sort of their participants in, in, in the decision making about all of that they're gonna learn and what they're gonna do. Um, and I, I wanna say, you know, w- w- one thing that we've done a lot of talking about content-rich complex text. Yes, 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 yes. The one thing that that is nuanced and sometimes hard to keep both in our hand, you know, both as we're talking about it, is students' volume of reading on a topic that can be at a range of complexities. So it isn't like you have to stock your classroom or only allow your students to read like a grade level complex text. If it's an area they don't know a lot about um, or they're really interested in it, they can start with with um, with easier text and move and, and move on up, if you will, on that particular topic. It's a hard thing to keep. It's different than than leveling students and saying this is you're you're relegated to this level that's where you are and you can't get out of it it's like a prison you can't do that it's different than saying no and to build your knowledge like there are some things like oh my goodness give me a give me a something on physics and uh, you know i'm like well i got to go back to like the basics before i can understand the black hole and what they're trying to tell us they just found out <laughs> Am, but I'm, you know, I'm a really good reader, but those that I don't know as much about that topic as maybe I should or whatever, but I, so I've got to start with much easier text yep. and, then, and then move on up. So I, I want to say that there's this volume of text reading that can be at many levels. And then there mm-hmm. is your complex content-rich, uh, you know, complex text, which sort of anchors maybe your other reading in that, um, in that. I just want to make that point because sometimes people come away thinking, Oh my gosh, it's complex or nothing.
0: Yeah. I also want to want to Super say important. that when, when you're talking about text, um, I'm, I think it's important to recognize it doesn't just have to be a book or an article. I mean, if I'm starting to learn about something, you know, I've, I've made, I'm making something like a, a dish I've never made before for dinner. I might watch a video, um, or, or listen to a podcast on whatever it might be. Um, and again, that, uh, visual mm-hmm. comprehension, that or that uh, auditory comprehension, I'm able to take that in in a different way than I would text. So it's just multiple access points. So you know, just keeping that multimedia in the spirit of texts is important to consider in this conversation as well. But yeah, I mean, how how appropriate and how impactful for our secondary student, for all students, but especially those secondary learners who could really drive and make choices in their learning in that way with a with the the choice in how they're building their knowledge, like that would be so empowering and impactful.
2: Amen. (laughs) <laughs> um, bravo, bravo on the visuals, because, um, yeah, uh, it's a wonderful uh, way to give access uh, immediately both but to all students, but as certainly our English learners as well, to be able to see it and hear it is different than seeing the words on the page. So, um, and it can drive interest as, as well. And then you feel like you have a modicum of, of understanding to be able to dig in, uh, in in other ways. So bravo on that.
0: I like to think about it when how when I put my first piece of IKEA furniture together. The little packet that they gave me really was not helpful. The picture packet, <laughs> so I had to go to YouTube <laughs> and watch that video a hundred times. And four hours later, I was finally a uh, master reader. <laughs>
3: <laughs> that is a good analogy. Yeah. The little stick figures don't do it.
0: Oh no! And uh, <laughs> that little. That yeah, little...
3: another thing we're excited. Yeah. Maybe it works for the Swedes. I don't know, but it doesn't work for me either. Um so another thing we're doing, speaking of different media, is um we have commissioned the Center for Cartoon Studies to write a graphic guide to reading. So that is coming um for the next by next summer, I think it'll be done. And it is um, student-facing, but it will be very educative for secondary teachers as well. It t- talks about reading, how the brain learns to read and how things can go sideways and what to do about it to a certain extent. So it is, it's its actually we're commissioning it thinking that um, the psychology of reading would be part of what students would all study in a humanities accelerator course so they all understand they're either lucky or unlucky, but there's work they can do to make sure that reading their brain processes reading more effectively and efficiently for them. So, um, because that's the other thing, is the sense of efficacy around reading is something that can get chipped away at, and we need to rebuild. that, that is those affective things matter greatly for student confidence and, and belief. And it matters, you know, so students can identify. One of their one of the ways they identify is as a student, as a learner, as a reader. But those those worlds are open and not closed. So very excited about that and where that might go too. So that's come back. Nice. come back around in a while and we'll get that we'll get that up to all your listeners.
0: Yeah. Oh my gosh. So exciting. <laughs> well, you two are just so busy and we're we're grateful that you took the time to come on today. We always ask all of our, um, guests to leave our listeners with one final piece of advice, uh, before, before they go. So in the spirit of the conversation today, um, we've talked about a whole lot of things, um, COVID, learning this COVID era. We've talked about uh, text at the center. We've talked about, um, you know, our, even our secondary students and, and what works best for them, um, some, some data di- driven instructional practices that may or may not be effective, <laughs> may not. Um, if, if there's any piece of advice that you'd like to leave our listeners with, uh, we would love to hear it.
2: So I'll, I'll start. Um, I think, uh, and I'm saying this to myself as I say it to all the listeners, is this is the time to be gentle um, with ourselves and with one another. Um, and, and, and in that vein, I think uh, what I would say is this is the time to focus and to do less um, really is to do more and to do better, and not try to stuff everything in that. That and, and and I think that that can be really a good thing for us. So that as we think about what we really need to focus on, which we've talked about here, which is the text, which is content, access to content, rich uh, complex text, drawing evidence from that text, learning, writing about. You know, talk. The discussion bar is a little hard on this if you're doing the the virtual piece, but I think it's. Um, Focus, do less to do more and to do better. And I think when we do that and figure out what really matters, I think that can lend into when, when we're all finally back together um, in, in in classrooms to, to continue that. So that's what I would say.
3: So we didn't rehearse this. So it a part of my answer, which was Aww. to be gentle with yourselves, But, but also, I, mean, I think it's really important and uh, came up with it independently, but also dream big. Like what is what can the world look like after this, like, like maybe find some peace and in, in, in dreaming big about other ways of thinking. Um, and then my last one is even more. If you're in a remote or hybrid setting, relationships matter. You're, you know, your students need you to know them as people. And I think the secret to all that assessment stuff too is to know your your students as people and as readers. You know, what what do they individually need help with, and what do they need pushing on? that's all about relationship and, and knowing, but, um, and then dream big for what, for what schooling could look like after this. I love that.
1: Yeah, me too. (laughs) Well, thank you both. I'm so excited that we got to talk to you and I I hope we can have you back at some point. I feel like we could have many more conversations.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Thank you so much. We are so appreciative.
2: (laughs) Make it fun.
3: Uh, You all make it really fun. Yeah. (laughs)